open up to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. Se habla español, abran sus Biblias al libro de Efesios, capítulo 6, versículos 18 a 24. This morning, after five months in the magnificent letter of Paul to the church at Ephesus, we are, and this is really sad to me, we are in our last sermon in the book of Ephesians. This is where we close out the book of Ephesians. And through this series, we, we have seen the central message of Ephesians, that the church is what God is doing in the world today. If, if you want to do well with your life, find out what God is doing in the world today and throw yourself wholly into it. And Ephesians says, you want to know what God is doing in the world today? It's the church. It's the church. And we've seen that message unfold week after week after week. God has done a tremendous work of grace through his son, Jesus Christ. And then we have a roadmap for how to walk rightly, how to walk wisely, how to walk well defended as new creations in Christ. After five months in Ephesians, after so much has been said, what more is there left to say? Well, there is something more. So, looking down at Ephesians 6, we're actually going to go back, we're going to go back three verses, cover three verses that were covered last week as well, beginning in verses, verse 18, reading all the way to the end of the book in verse 24. Read along with me. Praying at all times in the Spirit. with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith. From God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace be with all who love our, our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we approach you right now, this very moment, in prayer, seeking your help, acknowledging that I, as a preacher, have no ability to accomplish anything today apart from you. We as hearers have no ability to hear and understand, much less apply, apart from the work of your Spirit. We have no ability to, to rightly perceive your word apart from 
the illuminating work of your spirit. So we ask right now that you would be present among us to do what you can only do and that it would have its effect in our lives, that grace and peace would be produced through our lives as we hear and seek to apply. Lord, I pray that you would help us once again, one final time in the book of Ephesians, to encounter Christ in his glory and to so be changed by that encounter. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So, so how does Paul end this magnificent letter? He ends it by commanding prayer, by asking for prayer for himself, and then at the very end, by praying. By praying for those he's writing to. Let me ask you this. Does that seem mundane? Does that seem like a a bit of a letdown of an ending after all the heights we've been to in Ephesians? All the blessings that we've seen, all the incredible possibilities of what Christ is doing in the church and what we could become. Don't Don't you think that Paul would end the letter by going, now go do it! You can do it! Come on! You know, this summer, is, uh, it's an Olympic year. Paris 2024. Uh, I love the Olympics. We, we love turning on the TV and watching the, the two weeks of, of Olympic coverage. And I don't know about you, but every Olympic year, there are certain events that I look at and watch and go, I think I could do that. Didn't look that hard. And, and it's like archery. Like, I, I, could, I could hit a target. Riflery, same thing, like shooting gun, pointing at a target. It, it can't be that hard. Rowing, you just rowing back and forth and go faster than the next boat. Equestrian is riding a horse. I look at these things and go, I, I think I could do that. I grew up playing baseball, and, and, and I would often hear people say, like, what's the big deal with baseball? You just got to hit a ball with a bat. How hard can that be? And if you play baseball, you know it's one of the hardest things to do in all of sports. But here's the thing. Most people could not touch a 90-mile-per-hour fastball once in 10 times. Couldn't even touch it. In reality, I couldn't hit a bullseye with a bow once in 10 shots. I, I could not ride a horse and jump over one of those fence things without falling off. In fact, I'm terrified of riding horses. Little, little known fact, I really am. What does it take for those people to become skilled at what they do? It takes years of practice, years and years of practice to make it look like it's easy. Now, Ephesians, is, it's, it is arguably the most complete outline of the Christian life lived in the context of the church, the most complete outline of that in the whole Bible. In other words, it's, it's the Bible's handbook for, for what the church is, how it was formed, what my role in it is, and how to carry that out. I mean, it is. It's magnificent. And, and I don't know about you, but I get to the end of, the, of Ephesians, and I am like, yeah, let's do this. I'm ready to go. I, I want to I see. I want to see. The the reconciliation that is not possible anywhere else in the world formed in this church. We're going to put the gospel of grace on display with our lives. We're going to 
We're going to form healthy marriages in this church. We're going to raise up kids in the gospel of grace. We're, we're going to enter into spiritual battle with the armor of God. Let's do this. Right? There's a little bit of that coming out of the, of the book of Ephesians, if you have a pulse. But if we're not careful, we do say those things. We do get excited, and we're thinking, how hard can it be? I'm sure I can do that. Let's get going. But you or I, if we're going to go out and try to successfully live out anything that we've learned in Ephesians, what we need isn't more practice. We need God. God's armor, God's blessing, God's church need God to work. (laughs) If any of those things are going to work in your life, God is the essential ingredient in order for that to happen. Without God, It doesn't work. So there needs to be a way to connect ourselves to God and what he's doing in the world through the church. So how do I connect myself to God and what he's doing? Well, that's the point of this message. That's the point that Paul is getting at here at the very end of Ephesians. And we have three points for the rest of our of, of our time today, to answer that question, how do I connect myself to God and what he's doing in the world through the church? The first point is pray at all times. Pray at all times. Second point is pray for the needs of others. The third point, pray for gospel fruit. So pray at all times, pray for the needs of others, pray for gospel fruit fruit. Start with the first point. Pray at all times. Look at verse 18. Praying, which Paul's saying pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Like I've already said, as a Christian, if you're not excited by the prospect of what, what is presented in Ephesians, you haven't heard, you haven't understood, you haven't learned. It's just blessing after blessing after blessing. And maybe you're thinking, well, it's been five months. Can you give me a little refresher of what we covered? I'd love to. Let's go back in Ephesians and let's, let's just enumerate all the different blessings that we've encountered by God's grace in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 3. You are blessed with Every spiritual blessing. Chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. You are chosen by God before time to be a recipient of those blessings. Chapter 1, verse 7. You are forgiven and redeemed in Christ from your sins. Chapter 1, verse 11. It says we're, we're made rich. We're given an inheritance that, that Peter says is kept in heaven for us, preserved. Chapter 1, verse 13 says we are secure we ourselves are secure, sealed by the Holy Spirit. 
chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, says that we are now alive with new life in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 7 says we are, we are the objects of God's grace, his undeserved favor that he showed to us even when we were still sinners. Chapter 2, verse 10 said that not only are we objects of God's grace, but he prepared good works for us that he will do through us as Christians living this new life. Chapter 2, verses 13 through 18 says that we are one with God, we're reconciled with God and with every other Christian. Oh my goodness. Chapter 2, verse 19 says that we are members not just of this reconciled community, but of God's family, his own intimate family. Chapter 2, verse 22, we're the very dwelling place of God's Holy Spirit. This is where God's spirit dwells. Chapter 3, verse 20, we have access to a power that exceeds what we could possibly even ask for or even imagine. Chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, we're members of the body of Christ. So deeply are, are we united to Christ that we are one in him. Chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, we've each received gifts from his Holy Spirit to carry out ministry, differently gifted so that the body of Christ is made up, is built up into the image of Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verses 20 through 24, we have Jesus Christ in his own example to teach us how to put on the new life that we received in him. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, we have been deeply loved by Jesus so that we can then go and love one another. Chapter 5, verse 8, we've received God's light so that we can then walk in the light. Not having to create the light for ourselves, but he is light and we walk in light. Chapter 5, verses 15 through 17, we've received the wisdom and the truth of God so that we can walk wisely in the world. 5.18, we've received the power to be actively filled with the Spirit of God on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. Chapter 5, verses 22 through 33, we have the blueprint for healthy, happy marriages in Christ. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, we have the foundation for productive, God-glorifying parenting. Chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, we have the resources to make every relationship of those who have authority and those who are under authority all that God intended those relationships to be. And then last week, chapters 6, verses 10 through 17, we have received invincible armor that renders Satan helpless if we use it. Goodness. What a litany of blessings we have in Christ. Man, I cannot wait I cannot wait to see this formed in us to a greater degree. This is what God is doing in the world. And God says, in Christ, whoever you are, I'm letting you, members of this local church, be a part of all of it. You get all of it. And so we get to the end of Ephesians and go, wow, I want to be a part of that. I want that to be my experience, don't you? But when you get to the end of it, you face a massive potential problem. It's the problem that, that, that theologians call the problem of legalism. The problem 
of legalism. And legalism, it can, it can wear a, a shiny, attractive coat. It's the problem of reaching the end of Ephesians and thinking, okay, now, now all I have to do is, is do all this and remember all this and apply all this. I've, I've just got to put this into practice. And, and doesn't that sound, that sounds reasonably like, well, yeah, of course, okay, yeah. But one scholar notes that, in other words, seeing all there is to see and know and do in Ephesians in such a way that you have full belief in God, but you just don't need him. I see all this. Yeah, I believe God. I believe God has done all this. Now I've just got to go and do this. Oh, that would be the wrong conclusion to draw. Friends, to take part in what God is doing in the world requires God. Seems like such a simple statement, doesn't it? But how hard is it to apply that? And to move by involving God in what we're endeavoring to do. That's the point. That's why Paul ends his instruction on the the armor of God with an instruction to pray. Commentator S.M. Boss says, the armor is not mechanical and the armor is not magical. It needs God to work. We can't just put the armor on and go out in and fight our spiritual battle, just us and the armor against Satan. No, this is the armor of God. This is not my armor. This is God's armor. It needs God to work. Prayer is what engages God in the spiritual battle. But, but, but this focus on prayer isn't just right here at the end of Ephesians in your Bibles just because it follows a section on, on the armor of God. No, prayer, prayer is the ending theme of Ephesians on purpose. It's the climactic theme. The, the larger point being made is that, is that you need God to make any of Ephesians work. That whole list that I ran through, if you want any of that to be your enduring reality, you need God. I need God. What you need, first and foremost, isn't practice to get better. That's exactly the point. It works in sports, right? Practice makes perfect. That equation doesn't work in the Christian life. Practice does not make perfect. Only, Only the freely given grace of God makes perfect. And then by grace, having acknowledged our need for God, we we then humbly, dependently practice. Knowing that it's not our effort that will make us perfect. It is actually Christ's righteousness which was purchased for us on the cross that makes perfect. The book of Titus, Paul wrote wrote another letter to Titus in chapter 2. He says, the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation. But then in verse 12, it says, the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation. And it appeared to train us, to train us to renounce ungodliness. 
the grace of God that saved us and, and initially bought us into this, this new family and this new life is no less what we need to continue living that life. So that's why the entire letter of Ephesians ends with this climax of prayer. John MacArthur says, prayer then becomes the key to appropriating the resources given in the rest of Ephesians. Prayer is what energizes and empowers the local church. But you say, well, I, is, does, isn't that what the Holy Spirit does? Isn't the, isn't the Holy Spirit who, who energizes and, and empowers the local church? I thought the Holy Spirit does that. Prayer is your conscious engagement with the Holy Spirit of God. There is no, hey, Holy Spirit, you do you and I'm going to do me, okay? You, you do the, your whole energizing the church and I'm going to go practice what, I, what I've learned in Ephesians. No, no. <laughs> Prayer is engaging the Holy Spirit of God to be the power behind that work. And that's precisely why, why Paul's instruction in verse 18, look down at your Bibles with me, is to pray at all times in the Spirit. What does that mean? What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? John Piper, uh, I think, very effectively summarizes. He says, it, it, means, it means that our prayers are moved and guided by the Holy Spirit. That is, we are being prompted to pray by the Spirit. He's awakening it and moving it. And the things that we pray for are being shaped and determined by the Spirit. So it's his power that carries the prayer, and it's his leading that guides the prayer. So if you're looking for a definition, praying in the Spirit is prayer that is guided by the Spirit's leading and carried by the Spirit's power. And, and for evidence that this is true, James 4.3 says, says it, it references asking God for, for, for things, praying to God, with wrong motives. I think Paul would call that praying in the flesh. Pr praying for motivated by, by selfish desires, to, to spend it on your passions, James says. That's praying in the flesh. Romans 8.26 says, For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit helps us in our weakness and intercedes for us to the Father. The Holy Spirit is a great helper of our prayer. The Holy Spirit guides and empowers the church to do and be all that God has intended her to be. And the kind of prayer that Paul is, is talking about is prayer that seeks that power and seeks that guidance to do and be what God has called you to be and do as a member of the church. See the correlation there? Here's the point. If, if, you're, if you're not tracking quite yet, the point is that even prayer is something that you don't just go do. Okay, I got this. I'm going to go pray. I need to pray more. Uh, Paul's point is, oh, you even need the Spirit's help to do that. You need grace to pray more. You want the blessings of Ephesians to become a reality in your life? 
Do you want a healthy marriage? Do you want healthy parenting? Do you want to put on the new man that you become in Christ? Do you want to finally put off the old man in that, in that way that you've been fighting for a long time? Do you want to experience grace-motivated living? Do you want the armor of God to work against spiritual attack? My friend, pray. Pray. Pray always. Well, you say, well, well, well I do pray. Pray more. Well, you say, well, well I, I pray quite a bit. Keep going. Don't stop. And pray more. Friends, I, preparing this sermon this week, I, I was deeply convicted. Uh, I, don't, I don't pray much. I don't. I pray before meals. So, sometimes I pray before meals. Sometimes our daughter does. Sometimes I pray with my kids before bed, but it's occasional. I, I pray while doing my devotions sometimes. I, I pray during small group, partly because I lead that small group. And, and, and not to make light of it, what I'm saying is a prayer is not a, a praying at all times in the spirit kind of prayer for me. I want to see big things happen in my life to God's glory, don't you? But if I'm not praying, I'm not involving God in it. Plain and simple. That's the point. If you want to see big things happen in your life to God's glory, you should involve God in that. The, the point isn't to guilt you into praying more. It's to say, if you want to see progress in your Christian life, shouldn't you involve God in it? And he's saying, I'm standing at the ready. Just call on me. You, you might know the parable of the, the persistent neighbor who just keeps knocking on their neighbor's door until the neighbor goes, what? God says, be that persistent with me. I want you to come. I don't know who the author of this quote is, but uh, I, I heard it years ago. Pray that God would give us enough success to know he's there and enough failure to desperately need it. To be in that place as a Christian, knowing that he's there ready to meet our needs, but also to know that we desperately need him and we can't do it on our own. So pray always. Second point Second point, don't just pray always, pray for the needs of others. Look at verses 18 through 22. Paul finishes verse 18. He, he says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication, praying for all the saints. And also for me, pray for me. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I ambassadored and changed that, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And so that you also may know how I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Interesting, Paul doesn't advise that we pray at all times for ourselves. Notice Paul doesn't once pray for himself in this passage. It wouldn't be inappropriate for him to, mind you. 
It wouldn't be inappropriate, but his point is, his point is something else. And I, I've been further convicted here myself, but, but it, it's sweet conviction. It's, it's pleasurable pain. Paul urges that prayers be made for all the saints, and then he asks them to pray for him. He doesn't pray for himself, but he asks others to pray for him. And listen, we should expect nothing else if it is indeed the gospel that has shaped the local church. Because the message of the gospel tells us that Jesus turned his attention wholly to the interests of others as he came to earth to reconcile us to the Father and to one another. If you think back to Ephesians 2, Verses 4 and 5, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. You, you, were, you were following the prince of the power of the air. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, not just dead, but dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and that others-oriented gospel grace that we've received from God should turn our attention outward toward the interests of, of those with whom we've been reconciled now. That, that is the, the directional flow of grace. It flows out from Christ to us, and it should continue flowing out from us toward others. Paul asks for prayer for himself, and listen to this. This is really neat. He expects that those who are praying for him will be expecting a report from him. So convinced is he that, that the people who are praying for him will want to know if and how their prayers are being answered that he sends Tychicus, great name by the way, he sends Tychicus all the way across Asia Minor just to tell them how he's doing. He says, pray for me, pray that I would have boldness in proclaiming the gospel while I'm sitting here in prison. Pray for me, and I know that you will. And because I know that you will, I know that you're going to want to know how God has answered those prayers. So I'm going to send Tychicus, the faithful brother, all the way back over to you to let you know how I'm doing, because I know it's, it's going to encourage your hearts. <laughs> and, I, and I'm speaking... For, for myself, but I know it's also true of so many of us. Most of us, we only get serious about prayer when we enter into a period of intense personal suffering or, or conflict or affliction. We are so much more concerned with our own personal problems than we are with the problems of others. And, and mark it, Part of the reason is because th this, is, this is the air we breathe in Santa Ana, California, United States, 2024. This is the air we breathe. The dominant message is being proclaimed from housetops today is prioritize your happiness. Do not let negativity into your life, however you would define negativity, and, and make sure that you stay positive for, for yourself Tell yourself how strong and valuable you are. You do you. Don't let anybody else tell you how to do you and you find happiness however you think you should. 
And yet somehow we're living in the midst of the most anxious, the most depressed, and the most unhappy generation in the history of mankind. What God has created through Christ by his spirit in the church is the exact opposite of that. Praise God it is. He's created a community where everybody's greatest concern should be the concerns of the other people around them. In premarital counseling, we, we often tell couples, husbands, don't worry about your needs. That's your wife's job. Wives, don't worry about your needs. That's your husband's job. Because biblically, from Ephesians 5, through 33, we know that God has designed marriage in such a way that, that both members of that marriage are laying down their lives mutually for one another. And isn't mar- marriage just a microcosm of the church? This new community in Christ full of people who are mutually laying down their lives for one another. So don't worry about yourself. You pray for somebody else and somebody else prays for you and we're all covered. That's how God designed it. Again, John MacArthur very poignantly notes, he says, do you want to be a healthy person? Then lose yourself in the real things that matter, the spiritual battles of other people. Lose yourselves in consuming prayer for your brothers and sisters and you won't have as much trouble with your personal anxiety. Before the Spanish Civil War began in 1936, the country of Spain was undergoing what we today might call a mental health crisis. Uh, psychiatric wards and, and, and asylums were, were bursting at the seams, just overflowing. But then an interesting thing happened. The Spanish Civil War broke out in Barcelona and Madrid, and they all emptied. All of these clinics and asylums emptied. Thousands of people were suddenly seemingly cured by our greater anxiety. I'm not, I'm not discounting at all the existence of real clinical mental illness. But I am saying that if, if you are today or regularly in your own head wrestling with anxiety, with your own self-worth, with, with how you're being perceived by others, etc., 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 on one hand, that's spiritual war being waged in your mind. See it as such. That's what that is. But on the other hand, perhaps you wouldn't be so consumed by those thoughts and concerns if you were consumed in prayer for the very real needs of your brothers and sisters around you and your neighbors outside the walls of your home and in in your neighborhood. So here's here's the first application of this. And, And it's... It's said poignantly on purpose, okay? And if you're taking notes, write this down. Forget about your own happiness. And if you are inclined to to consider the mental health of people, 
pursue the mental health of others before yourself. Leave that for yourself to the person sitting next to you. And as that person sitting next to you hears me say that, be the person who becomes concerned for their spiritual health, their joy, their growth in Christ. Everybody caring for everybody. Nobody only caring for themselves. The way God's designed the church is such that every person has dozens of people caring about their interests. Rather than each individual person being a magnet for their own personal attention with every single person doing the very same thing only for themselves. Oh, if this were modeled in our church, if, if we sought the Spirit's help in this, we'd be a people who would be more cared for than anybody around us. And as Paul asks for, for prayer for himself and advises prayer for one another, what kind of prayer is, 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 he, is he asking for? What kind of, pr- Paul, what kind of prayer does Paul ask for? He's in prison, mind you. He is in prison, in chains. He has chains rubbing at his wrists and ankles, but he doesn't ask for prayers for the sore on his left wrist, which is probably hurting if he has one. He asks for prayer for spiritual matters. He asks for prayer for boldness to proclaim the gospel. He, he asks for prayer, for prayer for the battle, for, for the unseen spiritual needs he's facing. And that's instructive. And that's the second application point here. Pray for the real spiritual needs of your brothers and sisters and your neighbors. Enter into the battle by prayer. Because the, 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 the temporal cares, they're, they're, they're going to pass away. Either today, tomorrow, in a month, or when Christ returns. Do you know what their needs are? If not, find out. When you hear them, do you write them down? Do you remember? Do you spend concerted, intentional time in prayer when you hear them? Do you check in and ask them for a report and say, hey, how are you doing? It would really encourage my soul if I knew. Do you let them know you're praying for them? How encouraging is that when somebody says, hey, I've been praying for you. Doesn't it just lift your soul to know, hey, somebody somebody else has my interests in mind. I know I'm not alone. That's one of my prayers for us, that, that God would do this in our church. He already does in so many incredible ways. But wouldn't it be amazing if God just continued to grow that and made that a feature of who we are as a church. Oh boy, finally, and we'll be very brief here, and then we're going to close the sermon in a, in a really unique way. Finally, don't, don't just pray for the needs of others. Don't just stay the level of needs. Pray that God would meet those needs. Third point, final, final point, pray for gospel fruit. How does Paul close his letter to the Ephesians? With a prayer for them. How appropriate. Beautiful. And mind you, this is, this is the third time Paul has prayed in Ephesians. He is actively, constantly praying for those people that he's writing to. Read virtually any of his letters. He is actively praying for the people he's writing to. Paul was a praying man. 
and he let them know how he was praying for them. How did he pray for them? He prayed for grace and peace. Grace and, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Grace and peace is how he opened the letter in chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace is, is how he closes the letter. Grace. Grace is what made us alive in Christ through faith. Grace is the means by which we were given access to every spiritual blessing Paul mentions in this book. Grace is what's required for us to appropriate, appropriate anything that we've learned thus far in the book. So grace is what Paul prays for them. Peace. Peace is what makes the church so beautiful. It is the adornment of the church. It's a body of people reconciled to one another, at peace with one another, who are able to engage in, in real conflict, yet be reconciled once again because of grace and once again be, be at peace with one another in Christ. Peace that is so deep that even when the flaming darts of Satan are shot at you, the church remains at peace. Paul says, may God's grace continue to be given in you and may peace be, be developed and shown and grown in you more and more and more. We are so, we're so inclined to, to look at ourselves and our own cares and concerns and worries, but we're also, if and when we do pray for one another, aren't we so inclined to pray for temporal needs and, 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 and temporal d deliverance? You know, praying for, for him to finally find a wife, praying, praying for that family to, to have financial security, praying for, for that person to finally get this job, praying for physical healing. And we should pray for those Absolutely we should pray for those. But that's not all we should pray for. Because this world is not all there is. And this life that we live right now is a blip on the radar screen of eternity. We're headed for somewhere else. We're made for so much more than the meeting of our temporal needs, my friends. we're entering into the battle to pray for others, we should be most inclined to pray for the real spiritual needs that matter most, the spiritual outcomes that extend into eternity, the spiritual outcomes that show a watching world how beautiful Jesus is and how true God is. So, as we close this sermon series, if we are to pray for the real spiritual needs of the people around us, let this be a reminder to us of what the best results we could pray for are. Pray for gospel fruit to be born in the lives of your brothers and your sisters and your neighbors. Oh, we should expect the Lord to save our neighbors as we pray for them. And if we do, Despite the battle that rages around us, we can expect that the church will continue to be what God is doing in the world until Jesus returns.